Welcome to the Olive Tree Podcast channel. Whether you're listening from our beloved Durban, South Africa, or from further away, we trust that you would feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community, and that you feel inspired by today's message. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's lovely to be here. I'm very bummed that Tim, you know, just flexed his ridiculous arm there um, and moved this thing, because in the first service, I got to drive it around and park it. Uh, and I have a small child who is, my son, he's three, and he's, among many things, he's basically just an excuse for me to buy Matchbox cars. Um, and so getting to drive things around is, is, a, is a big part of my life. Um, anyway, the, the, it's true, I haven't been with you throughout lockdown. When, when, I was, you know, when we were preaching from lockdown, I was in this building. This building, I mean, it's very nice. You guys have invested in it. It's very beautiful. But it's just a, it's just a shell, isn't it? I mean, I, I haven't been with Olive Tree Florida Road, the church that I love so much, uh, for more than a year. So it's wonderful to be with you if we've not met. My name is Paul, uh, and my usual gig is preaching in Kloof uh, at that site. Loads to be excited about in that site at the moment. Uh, right now, taking advantage of this beautiful weather, we meet outdoors. So you can imagine your, yourselves under maple trees around a cricket field, uh, having a very colonial service uh, if you live in Kloof. Um, and, and this morning, actually, I mean, if you were this way inclined, uh, if, you, if you're interested in podcasts, this week it might be worth hopping onto the Kloof podcast feed because Sia Madoncilla is preaching uh, in Kloof today uh, about what returning to normal should actually mean for the church when we use that word. Uh, and it's going to be an incredible message. That young man is preaching in a very exciting way. Uh, so I can't wait to hop on and listen to what God did through him this morning. Anyway, enough about Kloof. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you. And we are getting towards the end of this amazing time we've taken to study the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 5 of the book of Acts. On the surface, a very unappealing story. Um, and yet, so I, among a few other things, have basically spent the last month just staring at this chapter. And if for no other re- like if, if the only reason we did the Acts series was so that I got to get what I got out of this passage, thank you all for indulging me. It's been worth it. Like, I have been so blessed. Okay, that's a Christian easy way to say I have found life and I have, I think, had God do some really important stuff in my heart and in my brain as a result of this passage. Uh, so we're going to study it together, just good old-fashioned Bible study. No videos, no props, no gimmicks. I'm not even going to bring some kind of semi-legitimate psychology research as usual. None of the normal stuff. We're just going to study the text because uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. Okay, so to prime us, to get us ready uh, for this passage, I want you to think Well, I want you to try to feel better. I'd like you to try and feel whatever you feel when I use the word church. What does that cause in you? What do you think? Or again, sorry, heady person. What do you feel? What emotions rise up uh, when you hear the word church, when someone is talking about church? What is the kind of deep down automatic response that you have when you hear about that institution or that place or those people? You know, I know, I know for many, there'll be some warm and fuzzies, but I also know, if you've been around church very long, uh, there have been times when church has felt cold or left you cold. Um, I know that it can be this incredibly exciting place where you go to find life, and I know that it can also, for many, be a place where, because of the high expectations you have, it's almost more lonely than anywhere else. 
you know, we don't have as high expectations of any other sort of human institution aside maybe from the family uh, as we do of church. We've got incredibly high expectations, which means the church is often a place of great disappointment. And yet I know for others of you, you'll have experienced those, but you'll have this complicated thing because when you talk about church, you think, well, that's my home. That's what I love. Don't say those nasty things about my place. I'm not sure what emotions come up in you when you think about church. But I want you to try and get a few, figure out a few. If you've not done much church, I understand, I'm very stoked. If you're here and you're totally new to church, you probably have a better chance of answering this question well. Because um, you'll have a story, you'll have had some experiences with the bride of Christ, with this operation. Now, do you think it's likely that anyone else in this room has the exact same cocktail of emotions that you have when you think about church? It's pretty unlikely, eh? I imagine every single one of us has a different set of responses when we think about church because we've all had different stories, different interactions with the bride of Christ. And so some of the stuff you're feeling about church is really positive. Some of the stuff you're feeling about church may be negative. Most of it, I imagine, is complicated. So then the next question, maybe I'm a little cheeky to suggest this, but if you think that everyone in this room probably feels different things about the church, what are the odds you think that you're the one person here who feels what you're supposed to feel about church. You see, I come from a ministry family. I've done a lot of church. I've been in church my whole life. As I mentioned, I love this church. I love Kloof. I love the idea of the local church, and I am frustrated to all heck by how far she falls short of what she could be. If one of the things you felt is that church is a place for hypocrites, I would be very concerned about a church that wasn't filled with hypocrites because the message we preach is so beautiful. Any church that claims it lives up to it perfectly must be lying. <laughs> so every church is kind of deeply frustrating at the same time as deeply inspiring. There are humans in it. You're allowed here. Like it. <laughs> so, of course, we have complicated relationships with church. However, she is the bride of Christ, who God loves. Let me just, uh, like a word to the wise. If you find yourself criticizing a church, any church, just know that on the opposite side of that arm wrestle is God, who loves her, who died for her, who already sees her as beautiful. How dare we criticize churches, any churches? But I know that because I've had loads of experiences of church, because I'm starting to have a picture of what I think church is supposed to be. I'm very at risk of missing what she really is because I've got a kind of clear idea of what I'm expecting and what I've experienced. You may have that as well, a pretty clear idea of what you're expecting and what you've experienced of church. And that means that a text like this is a great invitation, a great opportunity for God to just grab us and go, yeah, you feel a lot of the things you're supposed to feel about church, but there's some you've missed. Or there's some things you still feel that it's just time to let go of. They're based on faulty assumptions. Because we have this invitation into an incredibly satisfying relationship with the bride of Christ. Better actually than that. You have an invitation to be part of the bride of Christ. And so every now and then it's great to just have our, our lenses refocused. Hey? And that's what I think this text is going to do. Because so far in the first four chapters of Acts, we've seen amazing stuff. We've seen incredible generosity. Okay, people like selling fields, giving all the money to the, uh, to the apostles so that they could make sure no one had need. We've seen epic unity. 
prayer meetings where people turn up and it's not like please turn to page five in your prayer book or some person on a microphone saying what you're supposed to pray. They just automatically, spontaneously, unanimously pray such potent prayers that the bricks and mortar of the building barely make it through the experience because the room shakes. The prayers are so powerful. We've seen huge numbers get saved. I mean, this is so inspiring. Not only are they kind of intimate and connected and have these amazing relationships that they're one of heart and mind, yet at the same time, every Sunday, they're saying, hi, welcome, I'm Paul, it's so great to have you here. I know last week you were busy persecuting us and trying to kill us, but you're part of the family, come have my seat. Like, there's hospitality and unity. We've seen miracles, incredible, you know, lame man, get up and walk, and like, loads of fun, incredibly inspiring. So that's a lot of the good news about what you should feel about church, if this is the prototype. If this is what church is like when humans have had the least time to mess it up. However, the text I'm about to look at, the story we're about to read, finishes with the line, and there was great fear in the church. Not, importantly, fear of persecution. There was mortal dread in the church. People were terrified for their lives. Not because outside forces were killing Christians. That happened as well. But at the end of this story, there's great fear in the church because the enemies of the church were killed. Not that the enemies of the church did nasty things to Christians, but that something so crucial was being threatened that some people had to lose their lives for the sake of protecting what the church was supposed to be. On the surface of it, not the most appealing story, I get it. We're going to learn about a couple, Ananias and Zephyra. And um, before I read it to you, let me just quickly summarize it, because this is a strange story to, to have a go at. And you may well need to, like I've had to, just sort of check a few things in your heart, your initial reactions to the story. So to quickly summarize, here's what goes on. There's a couple that own a field. They decide to sell that field and bring the proceeds to the church to be part of that fund you know, that, that looked after the poor. Just the previous chapter, Barnabas had, sold, had done the same thing. So Ananias and Zephyrus sell a field. They sell it for, let's for argument's sake, say they got 200 bucks for it. They decide, we can't be sure of the ratio, no one tells us, but let's just, again, for argument's sake, say if they sold the field for 200 bucks, they're going to tell the church that they only got 100 bucks for it. And then they're going to bring all 100 bucks to the church and say, hey, everybody, look what we just did. We sold this asset and we're giving it all to the church. They do this, they decide to, and then they do this, and then terrifyingly, their lie is seen straight through immediately, both die. And great fear gripped the church. That's an interesting story. Any good translation, by the way, that'll be the first time you see the word church in your New Testament. Up until that point, where we read about the church, they would have been called something else. If you can go and check this. This is the first time in the book of Acts you'll see the word church. Church is a translation for the word ecclesia. It's a very important word. It's the name that we still rejoice in now. It's the name that we will have for all eternity. The church, the ecclesia, the, the assembly of God's people, the body of Christ. Up until that point, she'd not been called that. It had been a group of believers, the way, whatever. This is the first moment where the church is called the church. So it's a coming of age moment. And anyone who studies the Bible will tell you that there's this idea called the law of first mention. That the first time God mentions something, is a really important moment. You should pay loads of attention to any time God does something for the first time in Scripture because he's setting a pattern. It's a prototype for something. Okay, so this is a prototype moment for the church and people are getting killed because they're threatening something that's really important to God. What on earth is going on here? 
And is this even fair? I mean, this is, they've just exaggerated what they put in the collection basket. I mean, like, it's not, they still gave 100 bucks. That's still good, right? Like, why are people getting killed for this? I think there are three ways you can respond to this difficult story, and let's just name them before we study it. There's one response, which is probably quite tempting, which is just go, I think maybe this was an accident. Like, I think this slipped through the editing process. You know, Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, I know, but maybe when Dr. Luke was writing this, someone else took hold of the teleprompter for a while, um, Ron Burgundy style, and like, you know, this was not really what it seemed. Maybe we must just wait for someone clever to explain to us one day why this, why this story doesn't mean what it appears to mean. I get that. I mean, that's a pretty sympathetic situation. I understand why you would look at a story of people being killed for lying in church and go like, that's just too hard. I don't understand how to square that with what I've been taught to believe about God and the church. Can I just caution you, as much as I understand, uh, can I just caution you against that, that response? Because as I say, this is the first time you see the word ecclesia. So if God is busy giving us a picture of how we're supposed to feel about church and we just draw a line through the uncomfortable bit, all you'll be left with is Instagram church. All you'll be left with is highlights reel, and what you will be putting a lot of energy and, and effort into being part of will be a watered-down, unsatisfying version of what the bride of Christ is supposed to be. So can I just suggest that if that's your approach, if you just want to go, oh, well, the uncomfortable bits will just laugh off, then I think you might find a lot of this a bit of a waste of time, to be honest, because the beauty and the power of church is when we get to grips with, well, what are we really dealing with here? What are we really playing at? If we say we're going to do church, what is that? Is that just some sort of man-made institution? Is that just a bunch of good ideas? Is it just spiritual infotainment? Or is there something more potent? And if there is, I better figure out what that is so that I actually know what to expect of it and what to experience of it. So option number one, probably not wise. There's another way you might respond to this story of God killing some people for lying about what they gave in church, which might be very rationally abject fear. I mean, this might just be a scary story. I'm just terrified at the idea that I could be killed at church. And the third way that I might respond, I suppose, is not to be afraid, but to be offended. What on earth is going on here? God, you can't be trusted. This is totally disproportionate response. You know, like it's just, they, okay, so they told a white lie. Cool, they were trying to seem cool. You know, like, give them a break. What kind of mean, untrustworthy, pernicious God is just loosing out judgment on people for stuff like this? Let me just say that as I've wrestled with those responses of mine, to either be afraid of the story or be offended by the story, I think that if you're afraid of the story, then possibly like me, that shows that you think too much of death. And if you're offended by the story, can I suggest that like me, that might show that you think too little of God. If I'm afraid of the story, I think too much of death. If I'm offended by the story, I think too little of God. Why? We as a church are busy mourning the loss of Derek Fitzgerald. If you knew him, I mean, death feels very real and very painful right now. But let's just remember that a lot of what God is trying to do in all of us is wean us off our finite human perspective of life and give us an eternal perspective. And from God's perspective, I suspect death looks very different from how it looks for us. It sounds weird to say because it is such a big deal for us, but I think for God, death's not really a big deal. You know, he's conquered it. Death, where is your sting? That you get to leave a failing mortal body and be upgraded into a perfect spiritual one. I don't think God thinks he needs to apologize to many people for letting them out of the suffering here and into the glory that's there. 
And let's be clear, this is not a story about judgment. Ananias and Sapphira aren't going to get to heaven based on whether they did or didn't give money or whether you did or didn't lie to God. Those are not salvation deals. You won't find the word judgment anywhere in this story. That if Ananias and Sapphira had put their faith in Jesus, the cross is big enough to deal with you even lying to God. Let's not get that wrong. The sacrifice of Jesus is enough that this isn't a salvation deal. So we'll get to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. If they were going there before, they're going there still. So if I'm terrified by this story, if I'm terrified by the idea that someone might take my life, I've probably given into what I suppose society does. We all work so hard to extend our lives and to pretend death doesn't happen. And God's like, hey, death's really not that scary. So potentially we think too much of death if this is just a terrifying story. On the other hand, maybe more importantly, if I'm offended by this story, if I'm just like, God, what right do you have to kill people for this? Then clearly I think too little of God because, guys, what we're dealing with here is not some tame, safe, make-believe God. We're dealing with a glorious, powerful, sovereign God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose understanding is greater than our understanding. And I'm don't think this is the point of the story, but if God were to say, hey, Paul, I'm holy, I get to make the rules. If you lie to me, you die. Like, that's got to be okay in theory. God should be allowed to say that. And if he's not, if my God is so small that he's someone I can say, how dare you to, then the world becomes a very scary place. Because as I look at a global pandemic and as whatever recession is supposed to happen, and as I look at loss in my own life and weakness in my own self I have a big, potent God who I'm not in control of, and that's why I have confidence. And if you have a small God who you get to criticize, you have no reason for confidence. And so if God is big enough to just say, I'm holy, my ways are perfect, and if you lie to me, you die, like, it should be okay for God to say that. And if he's not even allowed to say that, then we're still in the foothills of figuring out just how big and beautiful and powerful and holy he really is. And so I would invite you once again to go, okay, this story is not supposed to be scary, actually. And this story is not supposed to be offensive, actually. And if we can get ourselves past those, we can study it. Okay, are you in? Whether you're convinced by that or not, let's have a look at Acts chapter 5. So there was, in the first verse, there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount, and with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, interestingly, not to us, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished, and after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Okay, let's just pause there, because I think we're going to get to the, the one sort of main thing I want to take from this story before we study any further. Ananias and Zephyr make this plan. They bring their money to the apostles. At that moment, I suspect they didn't think that the big deal was that they were lying to the Holy Spirit. I suspect that they did think the big deal was, well, can we get away with this with the humans? And Peter says, no, the point is not that you lied to us. The point is that you lied to the Holy Spirit. The point is that you've lied to God. So the question I have to ask myself when I read that story is, do I lie to God? And if so, why? And you might immediately go, I don't, I don't think I lied to God. 
Not even sure I talked to him enough to lie to him. That might be what you think. But let's let the, the scriptures deal with us, okay? Do I lie to God? Well, if it's true, then in the new covenant, God has come to make his home within you. That if you've given your life to Jesus, that means he's already infected your heart with his glorious good ways and started to remove and strip away all your old ways. And if he's already put his will so deep inside you that the promise of the new covenant is in the words of Micah, that you, you, know, you won't have to tell your neighbor to know the Lord, but each one will know him. Like if God has already healed and started to restore my innermost parts, then lying to God will probably feel for you and I like not being true to myself. And I am not true to myself often. Don't know about you. I compromise my own values or my own sense of what is appropriate or what I want to do. I, we take strain with peer pressure, don't we? We react to the needs and expectations of others. We are afraid of their criticism. We long for their approval, don't we? That's part of growing up. Part of maturity is figuring out how to deal with those forces that tug on my inmost self. If the Holy Spirit is in you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then lying to God will most of the time feel like lying to yourself, like not being true to the plumb line inside you of the will of God and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so that makes me think, okay, so those moments where I do that, those moments where I'm tempted to, to drift away from what I know that I know that I know I want to do for God, and I let myself say or do things that are a little to one side or the other, why? Why am I lying to God? What's going on there? What am I trying to get out of people that I'm prepared to put at risk my relationship with God, or at least not be true to him? And it's fascinating to me that Peter asks that question, why did you lie to God? Having just reminded Ananias, it was your land. It was your field. It was your money. Where were you getting this pressure from? Do you see the point I'm making? That, that Ananias has, for some reason, and Zephyr felt some sort of pressure that they have to do this or they have to pretend to be better than they are. And Peter's going, it was your field. Why were you feeling all this pressure? It was your money. Why did you feel the need to exaggerate it? What social standing were you trying to claim? What approval were you trying to claim? What pressure did you feel that caused you to not be true to yourselves? If you didn't want to sell the land, you didn't have to. If you wanted to sell it and give 10%, that would have been awesome. Not bummed that you didn't give much money, not bummed that you lied to us. Why were you not being true to yourself? What caused you to fundamentally cave to this pressure? What pressure do you think you're under? And that's really interesting, because every time you or I, well, let me not be so blanket. I think most of the time you or I aren't true to ourselves, it's because there is some resource in your life that we haven't believed is truly ours. And we need Peter to say, it's your field. Why are you feeling this pressure? In Durban, if you invite someone to something, what is the Durban response? I'll see, I'll try, okay? We know that, you know, that's like our, it's, it's on the crest underneath our you know, city coat of arms. Like, I'll try, be there if I can. And um, the reason that's frustrating is because it's your time. No one else is in charge of your time. You tell me, are you coming or not? If you say you're coming, be there. But that's what Joburgers apparently say about us. Um, I think similar to Joburgers, uh, Star Wars people say that um, Yoda says there is no try, there's only do or not do. Maybe we all need a lesson in that or something like that. I don't know what the 
Steve, you seem to know. Um, Here's what's going on. Perhaps you need to allow the Apostle Peter to say to you, it's your field. It's your time. Oh, but if you knew how many people asked me to be at this, that, or the next thing, like, don't blame anybody else. Where are you getting this pressure from? It's your time. How about this one? We can understand the time one. What about your mood? I am so angry right now. You won't believe the way those people, if you had seen the way they treated me, if you had heard the way my boss spoke to me, you would understand why I'm busy kicking my dog. No, no, it's your mood. It is your field. You are in charge of it. No one else gets to tell you how to feel. Only you do. And I know how massively difficult that is. I know how much strength and maturity it takes to go, yes, I'm having these experiences, but I'm going to choose how I feel. But the Holy Spirit has given you authority over your emotions. You actually are in charge of them. And potentially Ananias and Zephyr felt some sort of pressure, felt like it wasn't really up to them to decide. Oh, but Peter, you preached this amazing sermon last week in Acts chapter 4 about Barnabas who gave his whole field away. We thought it was like expected. And Peter's going, it was your field. You're under no obligation. You're under no pressure. You are free. No one can preach anything at you that can cause you to not be true to yourself. So my mood, my time, what about my attention? Oh, but you, I mean, you should have seen what they put on the advertising there. I just couldn't help it. And they told me that you know, stocks were limited. And so I, it was such a good deal. I had to, like, it's your attention. It's your money. It's your energy. Oh, well, I would grow better if my church would only do better discipleship. It is your relationship with God. Or oh, I would work harder if everyone else in my organization wasn't on Facebook half the time. You are working as unto the Lord. Who cares about them? Or oh, I would be more integrous and honest if the police actually enforced fairly. It is your field. It is your field. And Peter is challenging me because I know how irresponsible I can get and how much I abdicate responsibility, just like you, I suspect. And I feel pressure to be how they want me to be or exaggerate what I've done in order to gain something out of man. And I'm risking something with God where he's going, I want you to be true to me. I want you to listen to what I have to say. No pressure from anywhere else. I've invited you into freedom. It is for freedom that I've set you free. Don't go and put yourself in some bondage again, some legalistic, if you don't, God won't, all of that other nonsense. You're here to be free. And I just wonder if we're starting to get to what God was taking so seriously in this moment. The first mention of the ecclesia, that he was prepared to protect it in such an incredible way. Let's continue. So three hours later, the wife came in, uh, not knowing what had happened. And you can flick to the next slide, Alec. And Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Now, there's no way to know if Peter said 200 rand or 100 rand at that point. And do you see why that's important? If she comes in after three hours and they've claimed that they sold the land for 100 bucks and Peter says, did you get 200 bucks for it? Then he's saying, the game is up, we already know, and he's giving her an opportunity to repent. If, which I suspect is what actually was happening here, but I have no sort of solid reason for thinking this. If Peter says, did you get 100 bucks for the land, then what's he doing? He's kind of giving her an opportunity, to be honest. He's saying, he's leaving it open for her to, to choose the lie or not. Whatever he says, she says, yes, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are at the door. They're going to bury you also. Off she drops dead, and off they go. Another unceremonial burial. <laughs> it's like wild. And great fear gripped the church. We've got that part now. There's just something fascinating here. There's maybe a side note. Um, 
Possibly this is evidence of how far society has come that this wouldn't jump out at you when you first read that. But I think that is an amazing passage for feminism. You weren't expecting that. Here's why. Everything about that culture would have said the, the noblest, godliest, only thing that wife should do is back up her husband. And she has a perfect excuse in that, well, it was my husband who was keen, and so I'm with him, I, you know, it's not my fault. And yet in this moment, she's hold, held to account on her own two feet. Did you choose to lie? Yeah. No, oh, but my husband, oh, but you, you know, like, that wasn't good enough. And, you know, we're getting into slightly strange, mysterious territory here, marriage is. But you know, marriage is, you become one flesh when you get married to someone, which means that there is no relationship on earth that de deserves more of your devotion and submission and effort and investment. However, I know that married people do, from time to time, blame their spouse for the level at which they're living, don't they? Or is it just me? <laughs> just my wife? No, my wife you know, is doing so much better than she otherwise would have done if she hadn't married. Yeah, right. Um, we, oh, you know, if I wasn't married, like, then I'd have a six-pack. If I wasn't married, then I would go bigger on God. If I wasn't married, then I'd have all this extra money for the kingdom or probably just for toys for my hobbies. Like, if, it, if I wasn't married... You know, Perhaps you don't say it as blatantly as that, but whether it's your spouse or the other close relationships, your family, your folks, whatever, we do spend a lot of time blaming our nearest and dearest for the level at which we're prepared to live. And that is the most important relationship on earth for you, but it is not the most important relationship in the universe. You have a relationship with God which trumps your relationship with everyone else. If you're prepared to to not be true to God for the sake of keeping the peace, you're making a mistake, and you don't have that excuse. Zafira didn't have that excuse. Well, I was just backing up my husband. I was just being a good wife. Eh, wrong. You weren't true to God, and that is the problem. Again, I get that this is slightly murky because we owe each other a huge debt of love, but I come back to that same story. How much responsibility am I abdicating for the resources in my life? If it weren't for so-and-so, I'd do such-and-such. It's your field. It is your mind. It is your heart. It is your time. It is your energy. And it is your God who's put his spirit inside you and called you to live in a glorious way. And the sooner we can stop saying to Peter, oh, but that preach you preached or that example you gave or what everyone else asked me to do, this is why we need the boundaries course. And so we get to this question again. What is it that God was so committed to protecting at this moment that he was prepared to do that. I don't think we've really answered that question. So, okay, the question I have to ask is, why would I lie to God or why would I not be true to myself? But the question we have to ask as students of this text is, so what's God up to here? What is he really caring about? First moment the church is, is mentioned, this is prototype, and we've seen all this other glorious stuff, you know, unity, generosity, etc. What's God after here? What is he protecting? What is so important at the prototype, in the DNA of the church, that he was prepared to sub people out of the team before they poisoned the way the team was playing. Sorry, Ananias and Sapphira, back to the bench, because at this moment in the game, it is so critical. And let's be clear, nobody else dies in the church later. People do much worse things and get away with it. So God is clearly responding in a very specific way to something that's going on here. An insecure preacher might say, well, what God really doesn't want is for you not to submit to authority in the church. Rubbish. A Unscrupulous preacher might say, well, what God really wants is for you to give lots of money. Rubbish. 
This is not about judgment, remember? Peter's not saying the problem is that you lied to us. He's saying that the problem is you lied to God. So it's got nothing to do with church leadership. The problem's not about money. Peter's saying it was your money in the first place. You didn't have to give anything. Not about your commitment to church. What is going on here? What does God want to safeguard? What does he want to protect? What does he want to stop human beings messing up? The only thing I can figure out, the only answer to that question that makes sense with the story is that God is committed to freedom in his church and he will go to war against anything that introduces pressure or legalism or, or any kind of control into his bride. He's going, I have put my spirit in you, I have put faith in you, I've put grace in you, I've put stuff in you and I've given you a field and the only reason I ever want you to do anything with the field you have is because you're being true to me and the voice that's inside me. And if you're doing stuff in response to pressure, God can't get glory for it. Your self-control might get glory for it. Your manipulative leader might get glory for it, but God gets no glory for it. If you do anything for any other reason than God gave you the ability and then gave you the desire, it's by man and for man. And we're not called to be people-pleasing. We're not called to be ladder climbers. We're not here to try to earn some extra influence or popularity. God's prepared to kill to keep his church free from, from that. It is for freedom that I've set you free. There will be no pressure in this place. This bride that I'm building is gonna be a safe place for you to come and give only what you're willing to give. And anyone who wants to start pretending they've given more or buying into some rubbish that we're gonna you know, posture and climb ladders and put pressure on one another, we need to stop that right now. And to try to bring some sort of practical legs to this in the last few minutes, I, I then jumped over to Romans 12, because Romans, this sort of reminded me of something that happens in Romans 12. Now it's Paul speaking, not Dr. Luke. And Paul sort of does the like, by all the power vested in me, and, and he then, after grabbing our attention, says, look, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Can you say the word measure of faith? Measure of faith. I don't understand all of what Paul is saying here, but he does speak about this quite often. But God has given you a measure of faith. That he's given you a specific revelation. And if you start trying to live out of someone else's measure of faith, if you start trying to pretend that you think what someone else thinks or you believe what someone else believes or you are as confident as someone else, you're going to end up back in that pressure, man-pleasing thing. He's going, I've given you a measure of faith. Even if it's just a mustard seed, that's enough for you to do a whole lot with. I've given you a measure of faith. For as in one body we have many members and the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So he's given you faith, and now he's given you grace. He's given you some favor, some ability, some gifts. And the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira is, well, let me not pretend my gift is bigger than it is. The lesson of Ananias and Sapphira is, let me not respond to pressure and pretend I want to do more than I actually want to do. What have you actually given me, God? And what have you actually motivated me for? And then let's look at what that looks like. So, let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
Something immediately jumps out at me about that list. Firstly, that's not an exhaustive list. There's a lot more that Paul will describe in other texts elsewhere that God could have given you as your grace, the thing you bring here. It could be all sorts of stuff. But Paul is saying it has, to, it has to flow out of the measure of faith you've been given. If you're responding to pressure, if you're responding to need, God doesn't get glory. It must come out of your faith. It must start with him. And then it's interesting. I don't know if you noticed, but in this list, some stuff is just listed. If teaching, teach. If exhorting, exhort. And then some stuff has qualifiers. Did you see? Some stuff is not like, okay, just to do it. There's a specific way that you have to be careful that you're doing it. So the first one that was on that list was prophecy. If prophecy in faith, in proportion to your faith. So here's what that means. All of us are called to desire the gift of prophecy. Some have it more than others. Prophecy is the ability to see what's really going on. When it's particularly spiritual, you're looking from God's perspective, you're seeing from heaven's perspective what actually is happening on earth. In some cases, even what's still to come. But all of us, at some basic level, have an ability to prophesy. You just call it discernment. So you have an ability to kind of see what's going on, to see beyond what's purely physical. More empathetic people kind of pick up vibes in relationships. That's not a million miles away from prophecy. So here's the thing. Paul is saying, if you're going to prophesy, if you're going to describe how you see the world, Make sure you do it with faith. Here's what not doing it with faith would look like. So, you know, India's cooked up a third wave. The vaccine's going to be powerless against it. You think the economy's bad already. It's going to be absolutely on its knees in a year's time. And I hope you enjoy meeting as a church while you still can. Soon the doors will close. That's prophecy. It's doomsday prophecy, right? There's no faith in that. You may have the ability to see what you think is coming. You may have the ability to, to sense, oh, this government can't be trusted or whatever, like... Congratulations. Paul's saying, if you can't do it with faith, shh, don't speak. If you can't prophesy with faith, don't prophesy. If you can't speak about the world and what's coming with a sense of confidence in this powerful, almighty God whose glorious bride is the most dangerous thing on earth, if you can't speak like that, just sub yourself off for a little bit. Don't post on social media. Don't bring that up with the bride. Don't do that stuff if you want to be part of the glorious part of Christ, because do whatever you do in proportion to the faith you have. And if at some point you find yourself having gone beyond where you have faith, just stop for a moment and go, okay, I'm not going to speak, I'm not going to do, let me just return and figure out what's going on with my faith. Why do I not have faith in that area? Refresh yourself, get connected to the vine again, then re-engage. Teaching, just teach. You can't teach about the gospel without faith. Exhorting, just exhort. You can't do that without faith. You can't encourage without faith. How about contributing. Well, it's possible to contribute begrudgingly, isn't it? It's possible to contribute because someone said you must or because they had the, you know, temerity to ask. Oh, they asked me to help them move house and now I have to. Like, no, no, it's your field. So don't contribute unless you can do it with generosity. Did you see that? Unless it's an overflow of something that's actually happened inside you, just don't. The next one, acts of mercy that you can forgive others, that you can be kind to those who are nasty to you. There are ways that you can do that that glorify you. God says, only do those acts of mercy if you can do it cheerfully because some deep miracle has to have gone on. If you're gonna forgive someone or be kind to those who are nasty to you and not just do it because you must or because you're trying to look impressive, but cheerfully, God's going, that's the kind of thing I want. Freedom in my church. Not because you have to, not because you must, not because anyone's telling you, not because you're trying to be like so-and-so. If you can do it cheerfully, do it. And then the last one that was amazing to me was leadership. Paul said, don't lead unless you can lead with zeal, wholeheartedly. You know, at the beginning we were talking about who gets hurt in church or who, what your experiences of church are. 
I don't think anyone gets hurt in church as much as the people who offer to lead it. I don't think anyone finds church as lonely as those that offer to lead it. And if at any point you find that your zeal has gone out and you're turning up at kids' church to lead these young minds and you're just doing it because someone asked you nicely or you're turning up to lead your life group but you're just annoyed that they're going to steal another roll of toilet paper or whatever it is, like, <laughs> if the zeal's gone, if the faith and grace aren't aligning to make this a willing overflow, I'm not saying stop that week, but your whole attention should be on what's happened to my zeal. We shouldn't be willing to put up with behavior in church that stopped feeling free three months ago and I'm still doing it because I don't want to let Justy down. That's not good enough. God was prepared to kill to stop that happening in his church. This is supposed to be a place of freedom where faith and grace overflow naturally. I am not saying that you must only do what you feel like doing. I'm saying you should only do what you have faith to do because it is possible to want to do something and not feel like doing it. The Holy Spirit makes me want to be generous. The moment when it comes to being generous, if I don't feel like it, that's okay. I can shut those emotions up. I'm not going to be a slave to my emotions. They can't be trusted. But if there's no faith in it, if this is something I actually want to do, or at least want to want to do, then I need to go, oh, let me not do this unwillingly. Let me not do this out of pressure. Let me not do this to try and advance myself or please others. God, I want to do only what you've called me to do. Because his house, his church, is a place of freedom or else it doesn't work. His house is a place of faith and power and genuine glory of God. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Lord Jesus, thank you for your bride. Thank you for this beautiful, deeply frustrating, deeply flawed, but beautiful body that you've put us into. Thank you for how seriously you take her and how much faith you have in her. Thank you, God, that you let me find your bride. And thank you even more amazingly that you have a place for me in her. Wherever we've allowed pressure or people-pleasing or legalism or any kind of dishonesty to enter into this place, we repent, Lord. And in my own life, wherever I have allowed pressure or dishonesty, to cause me to do for man what I'm not actually willing to do for God. God, I want to be connected to you. I want to respond to you and what you have done in my life and nothing else. I want to be free. I want to be secure enough and brave enough to do only what you have given me the faith and the grace to do and nothing else. Everyone in this room who at some stage has been pressurized or felt judged or responded inappropriately to, to what this world asks of them? Would you heal us right now? Would you strengthen us in those areas? Would you pull us back to yourself? Would you grow our faith? Give us more grace? So that when we engage the world, you get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here this morning. It was lovely to see you all. See you next week. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to find out more information about Olive Tree Church, please visit our website at otc.org.za or email info at otc.org.za. We hope you have an amazing week.